Welcome to Book Talk for Book Talk, a podcast where we deep dive into the writing of your favorite novels. This season, we're exploring Sarah J. Mass's first installment in the Crescent City series. This is Jack. And I'm Amy. This is part two of this week's episode. So early in the chapter, Hunt looks through Bryce's file and he says about her, quote, seems like she's your standard spoiled party girl. And what a surprise. She's Danica Fendier's roommate, the party princess herself. This is the first sign of what will be a journey for Hunt and several people around Bryce. Even Isaiah later in the chapter thinks, quote, he'd seen whores in the meat market wearing more modest clothes. The judgment is so plentiful here and it just isn't going to stop. This perception of Bryce is her life now, but also the persona she'll hide behind in the future. I'm not going to deep dive into it at this moment, but just remember this scene. I can't wait until Hunt feels guilty about judging her for Mm. drinking just to find out she's sober. There's nothing I like more than like groveling men in books. I, yeah. Yeah. Big bitch. I agree. (laughs) (laughs) On your hands and knees. So I'm going to roll up my sleeves a little bit and uh, let's say it all together. Sexism. First, the title party princess. Please, please, please give me the male equivalent. Like, what mm-hmm. would that? Party prince? What's what's that? Yeah. I mean, yeah. the most I would say is, like, a bro. Dancing douche? <laughs> <laughs> I want that as my shirt now. <laughs> I'm a dancing douche. <laughs> I think that's a compliment. <laughs> Who's a dancing little douche? But, like, genuinely, though, like, the it's condescending because, like, yeah. calling grown women princess is a condescending thing. Yes. You know, you're not you're not grown. You are a child, essentially. And they even recognize that Danica is powerful, a leader, and they reduce her to party princess. Mm -hmm. Then we get the constant references to Bryce's outfit, like, and how she looks and the fact that she's being called a whore? Yeah. From her outfit? Sir. Sir. Her dress has been shredded? Yeah. All right? So this, like, extra low-cut business, the fact that it survived this long is a miracle within itself. Why hasn't anyone given her a sweatshirt? Also a great point. What about a blanket? Yeah. Yeah. She's probably, I mean, coming down from the adrenaline high that she's just had, her body's probably going into shock. Why aren't you keeping her warm? I've seen those shiny little blankets. Yes. Give me a thermal blanket. Yeah, little dancing douche. Go get that for her. (laughs) Dance for me, douche. Like, But like genuinely, there's just so much that they go against, like, they go at her, and I want to take it a step further. Bryce is worse than a whore in their eyes. She's an animal yeah. because in this chapter alone, she's described as feral or wild four different times, not including the other times that there she's described as thrashing and all these other like so like five six times. Like when you include all of those descriptors, she is an animal mm-hmm. in their eyes, which is again she's in shock, right? You fucker. I'm mad. You're mad at everybody this episode. I am. It's because I'm protective of her. Yeah. I'm just... I mean, this is a this is a rarity. I'm mad at everyone but the main, main character. character. Wow. <laughs> Growth. <laughs> Growth or me just, like, ignoring everything about Bryce. Yeah, <laughs> She's yeah. my, little, my little party princess. <laughs> uh, basically, it's funny, though, a little bit that she's animalistic and she's the half-human one. 
while the veneer are all kind of more animals mm-hmm. and they're judging her. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a little sweet moment. So sweet. <laughs> Let's talk about another sweet moment. Not really. <laughs> I'm joking. So at the first part of this chapter, we don't know yet whether Isaiah and Hunt are slaves. We know Hunt is an assassin, but that's about it. Then we learn that, quote, Isaiah had been there on many occasions when Hunt had done just that, returning triumphant from a demon hunting mission he'd been ordered to go on by whatever archangel currently held their reins. What do we associate reins with? Horses. As if Hunt and Isaiah are horses that are being steered. It would be one thing to be a soldier ordered around. This being reins immediately implies something else, like they're tamed animals, like they have no option but to obey. Then there's the fact that there is hierarchy within their own cabal that serves Micah, the Triari. Isaiah is the unspoken leader, but they don't even think about trying to place Hunt in any order among them. There's also the fact that, quote, Hunt answered directly to Micah and the rest of them stayed out of his way. The fact that Isaiah doesn't even want to think about Hunt's abilities or level of power or where Hunt should be ranked, all of this in addition to the fact that Hunt reports directly to Micah and not Isaiah, is a clue that most likely Hunt is extremely powerful, likely the most powerful. The omission of that information is in and of itself a statement of power, which of course begs the question, why is he not number one? We know what the answer is because we've read the book, but I just want to point out how cleverly SJM is playing with information here for first-time readers. And as second-time readers, we're like, I see what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A key thing we learn about Hunt in this section is, quote, Hunt and the concept of friends didn't mesh well. Even among the Triari, even after being here for two years, Hunt still kept to himself. The lack of friends and the willingness to be vulnerable enough to allow in new friends is a theme Hunt, and to a certain extent, Bryce, will struggle with throughout this novel and that I want to pay attention to as we progress. It gets subtly introduced here, so I had to flag it for us. It's just interesting because he wears a backward baseball cap. So you'd think he'd be able to make friends? I'm just saying. Name, <laughs> like, that's, like, implicit, right? Yeah. You know? You wear a backward baseball cap. It is, and like... And you a, watch sports. And you watch sports. You're telling me you don't have a friend? It's pretty sad. It really is sad. I mean, he's... I, I, what that means is he purposefully pushes people away. Yeah. No, he Because he should be able to make friends. He's so charming. He's a nice guy. It's because everyone knows about his foot fetish. <laughs> I always forget about the foot fetish. Oh, trust me. We're gonna... I'll be bringing it up. <laughs> okay. Feminist lens. <laughs> yeah. No, but like it is definitely sad where you do see that he's pushing everyone away. And it's interesting where how different he is from Bryce at this point, mm-hmm. but how similar Bryce is about to become to him. Yeah. I do love their journey. I do. So let's talk about the entwined thorn tattoos across the heads of the angels who committed crimes against the Republic, which both Hunt and Isaiah possess. They are described as a halo, quote, a mockery of the divine auras early humans had once portrayed angels as possessing. Now, I cannot help myself. 
Doesn't this sound like the crown of thorns that were put on the head of Christ right before his crucifixion that we know about from Christianity? Oh, yeah. Which, by the way, is a form of capital punishment in this book, crucifixion. And it's obvious to me that that's intentional, but also, like, so messed up. (laughs) So messed up, SJM. I applaud you. It is. (laughs) Now, I'm not here to force any religious opinions on anyone or telling anyone what their religious beliefs should be or if they're wrong. If I look at the story of Jesus Christ objectively as if it were a fable, I would say that Christ was considered a rebel within his society for the ideology he believed and acted upon, which was contrary to the ideology or accepted social norms of the society in which he was raised and lived. The same can be said of Hunt and his comrades who rebelled with Shahar against the Asteri and their republic. They believed the world should look and run differently than what they were born and bred into. And so they rebelled against society and its leaders who enforced the status quo. The imagery of it is just so... It's done on purpose. Yeah. Like, you don't go for something that aggressively associated with christianity and not have it be related and then like have it to do with fallen angels yeah you know like there's a lot and then having danica be named morning star like yeah you know it just kind of to me confirms any kind of like these like it feels almost like random things like oh you guys are pooling too much or yeah you're reaching it it comes down to this and it's like no but you have angels yeah who are fallen who have a crown of thorns yeah who are crucified it's so intentional yeah now, what does this all mean? We will find out. But, you know, it's interesting. It is interesting. And I want to bring it back to your point about Lucifer, because I can also see the crown of thorns being re- referred to Lucifer, not just Christ. So angels are inherently a religious image. And therefore, we're going to see these parallels to religious imagery However, I don't think that that inherently means Hunt is going to be a savior, um, the way that Christ is viewed as a savior among Christians. Esham is just borrowing elements of the story of Christ, so who knows what could happen. I do want to also acknowledge that these same angels, Hunt and Isaiah and their comrades, are called the fallen. And who's the ultimate fallen angel? Lucifer. And we had a long conversation about Lucifer last week. Interesting that both Danica and Hunt, the two most important people to Bryce, are both associated with the devil here. Mm -hmm. The same argument I made about Christ being the symbol of rebellion in the mortal world can be made of Lucifer in the spiritual world. Lucifer and Jesus both volunteered to be the savior of mankind. Jesus was chosen because he would allow humans to have free will. Lucifer wanted to force humans to do what was right. And that's what made Lucifer fallen. He was kicked out. Because he rebelled. And I I think that's more than just Mormons who believe that. I think that's other Christians who believe that, too. No. No? No. Is that strictly a Mormon thing? Yeah. Okay, that's a Mormon thing, guys. Yeah. But so, so for more context, (laughs) no, I don't need to. No, I mean, so I could be wrong because, like, I, we pretending like I paid attention in Sunday school? No. But for me, like, so from what I understand with Catholics, people are going to come in and be like, that's not... First off, all of this is, like, different interpretations through different religions that are all told. Like, you know, again, not to insult anyone's belief, but I know with Catholicism, it was, like, when Lucifer fell, it had nothing to do with humans. Oh, interesting. Okay. 
he was like rebelling against like the concept of like free will and stuff. Okay, so it's the same. I mean, at its core, it's the same idea. Yeah. It's that free will was the issue. Yeah. And Lucifer rebelled. Yes. And then he was kicked out. And then ended up in L.A. with a club. <laughs> and it turned out to be a good guy. If anyone's never seen the TV show, Lucifer, it's a really good show. There's so much Christian referencing here, especially with the crown of thorns, like you were saying, and the way that Danica died, you know, how she kind of like Jesus-esque Renaissance painting. Mm-hmm. And SGM is referencing it even by calling them both the fallen, you know, kind of like as you pointed out. And what's fun is that we figure out pretty quickly that the people who are ruling the Asteri, right, everyone, like they're not good, but mm-hmm. they are their gods. Mm-hmm. So I love this concept of like, okay, but what happens if you are rebelling and you were doing it correctly? Right, right, right. You know, right. like what if what if we had the idea of the fallen angel rebelling? But, like, we should have been on the fallen angel side. But at the same time, Hunt was with Shahara, and she seems like a bitch. Yeah. So, you know, like, there's no quite good here. And I love that concept, too, of, like, that there's no right or wrong either. Right. Because I think what SJM's kind of getting at, the more we learn, is that there is no objective truth. There Mm -hmm. is no objective right or wrong. It's what you make of it. And the Asteri happen to be bad guys. Yeah. And Hunt is good. Yeah. Like, we know he's good. He keeps trying for good. Yeah. But we also know that his cause wasn't right either. Like, the the battle that he was on wasn't right. right. Like, he killed a bunch of people. Right. Shahara wasn't great. Like, there was flaws there, too. And, like, it's so case by case. And then, you know, I like that your comparison with uh, Lucifer with Hunt as well as Danica. And it makes sense because he betrays Bryce in the end, too. Right. It's all messy. All y'all. And and I want to stop and pause and say that it's not just Christian imagery that we're going to see in this novel. Yes. It's just really heavy right now. But I'm going to allude later on to some Greek mythology. We know that SJM is Jewish. We're going to see all sorts of different types of imagery. So if we missed anything. Point it out. Yeah, please tell us because we are not the knowers of all things. No. (laughs) We can't keep track of all the religions and all the different imagery. But we also know that she probably has tapped into all of them. Oh, 100%. SJM is so well read. Yeah. And knows so much about folklore and mythology and history. Like, it's it's all over the place. So if there's any other religious referencing that we miss outside of Christianity, like, please, please send it. Please tell us. So I can't forget to mention the reference to numbers here. And like I alluded to earlier, numbers are important. So let me give you some fun ones. We're going to end up with like a numerology lesson by the end of the season. Really, honestly, yes. <laughs> Isaiah and Hunt meant while they were in the 17th Legion. In angel numbers, 17 is to stay on your path. Mm. In Shahar's rebellion, they served in the 18th legion. And in angel numbers, 18 is to find the path to progress, which is what the rebellion was about. Yep. It was about breaking down rigid hierarchies and moving towards, like, progressing past whatever Mm -hmm. hierarchy they have. It's not patriarchy, but it is patriarchy. But, you know, whatever. Bring in the archy. Bring in a different archy. Malarkey. <laughs> That's what we want. I also have to point something out we didn't talk about a lot last episode, but I can't help myself because it's just going to keep coming up. This book, like all of SJM's series, like 
all of them is rife with celestial and astral, not astrological, astronomical (laughs) imagery, stars, moon, suns, all that fun stuff. Mm -hmm. So, for example, last episode, we didn't talk about how Bryce viewed Danica and Thorne as orbiting each other. Mm -hmm. That's an astronomical thing. The root word for asteri is aster, which means star. And I actually knew that before this because I use aster in my own book. So I was like, I damn it, you took know. it from me. I didn't know that. I do. That's really cool. Well, or is the aster means star. Because it makes sense, like asteroid. Yeah. Yeah. Shahar is called the day star. Oh. Just that little nugget is in this chapter, by the way. Huh. Rune has a star sword and his ancestors are the starborn fae. So on and so forth. I would argue that it all means significantly more in this series than in other series. I know we talked a lot in the Actar series about moons being present and that being race. And it's all true. Mm-hmm. But I think it has even more meaning and significance in Crescent City. Yeah. I mean crescent city crescent the moon like it goes it's everywhere it's everywhere and there are reasons why sjm is obsessed with using this imagery and uses it consistently in both descriptions and figurative language i just want to encourage you to keep an eye out for it and i'll point out some really good ones as we continue to go through the book at this point sabine comes in and she's just an interesting character to me in the last episode, we talked about how we're biased against Sabine, and she really proves on her own why she's a terrible person. <laughs> she's obviously threatened and maybe jealous of Danica, but I also can't help but observe that she also loves Danica in a weird way. Yeah. When Sabine comes raging in looking le- looking for her family's sword, she says of Bryce, quote, That stupid little bitch is in there still breathing, and Danica is not. Her voice nearly cracked. Like, that has emotion. Yeah. Well, we know she does care about Danica. Yeah. In her own fucked up way. Very fucked up way. It just makes me curious, like, how she got this way. Which I have a feeling we're going to learn more about in the third book. Oh, like, they're probably going to have to work more together. Let's get into Sabine. I think what speaks volumes is that Sabine is described as not looking much older than Bryce aka also danica Mm -hmm. because she did the drop already and that makes sense because sabine loses authority then over bryce and danica if she's basically their peer in many ways and she already wasn't much of a mother figure and the fact that danica was stronger and Mm -hmm. it was going to go a title of prime apparent was going to go to her anyway it just drives home the point that sabine is hardly an authoritative figure yeah so of course she's going to go storming around yeah That's a great point. Sabine calls Bryce a whore and slut. And it's such a cheap insult. Like, when you have nothing left to say, people go for looks or sexuality. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. it's just... When you have nothing good to say, you just get crappy insults. Need I remind everyone that slut is a social construct and all that good stuff that I talked about earlier. About how, you know, she only slept with Reed twice and she hooked up with the person at the club. And also, like, she said she hooked up with him. She didn't say that she slept with him. Right. Hooked up could just mean making out. It could mean anything. Yeah. You know, Danica was the one who said stop sleeping or fucking whatever she said with guys like, you know, just saying. I mentioned earlier, but let's bring it back. Hunt does not dress up. 
while the others are wearing suits that are described with armor, Hunt doesn't need to because he's the predator. Like, mm. predators don't need armor. He does, like, you don't see an armadillo going out here, like, saying, <laughs> I'm going to fuck point. some shit up. Yeah, it's, it's a really good point. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> In a world of armadillos, be a hunt. <laughs> be a hunt. <laughs> yeah. And also the fact that Hunt's wings are gray, too, and that Isaiah's are white, which makes me not trust Isaiah more. Because his are white? Yeah. Mm, now he's... I'm, like, really real sus <laughs> about Isaiah. And immediately, like, we get to the fact, like, Hunt is a morally gray character. Or at least he's being signaled as a morally gray character. Is yeah. he really morally gray? No. Or is he just really in a shitty situation? He's in a shitty situation, but with a heart of a bunny. A heart of a bunny. But, like, a murderous bunny that can hurt anyone. <laughs> From Monty Python. <laughs> yeah, he's a Monty Python bunny. So you mentioned Victoria. She's very interesting to me. And I want to focus on her punishment, especially because Hunt and Isaiah, they were tortured. They were sold to angels. Boo-hoo. <laughs> Not that I'm actually making light of being tortured, but... Boo-hoo. 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 Victoria, on the other hand, is a different case. Now, punishment, naturally, is a case study in power dynamics. In my opinion, the best kind of punishment and therefore the best display of power is to turn the tables on something that is fundamental to the individual's identity, whom you are punishing. So in the case of Victoria, she's a wraith. Quote, wraiths wore bodies the way some people owned cars. Vayner wraiths switched them often, usually at the first sign of aging. Even though Victoria claims she likes the build and movement of her current body and therefore has stayed in it longer than is normal, quote, now she held on to it because she had no choice. It had been Micah's punishment for her rebellion to trap her within this body forever. No more changing, no more trading up for something newer or sleeker. For 200 years, Vic had been contained, forced to weather the slow erosion of the body, now plainly visible the thin lines starting to carve themselves around her eyes, the crease now etched into her forehead. Punishment in this novel follows a theme. Hunt, who once killed in the name of rebellion to tear down the angel hierarchy, now serves as an assassin for that angel hierarchy, and in a sense, to preserve the hierarchy. That's messed up. No wonder everyone in this novel feels hopeless. They are slaves to the system that they cannot tear down. We're going to see the same power dynamic continue in the series as we watch what happens to Bryce, Hunt later on, Rune, Therian, and others. And it's just so painful. And it, once again, I think as Sham is just like, hee <laughs> the whole time. I find the punishments to be very Greek and Roman-esque. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's never just a, you know, time out. You've been bad. <laughs> yeah. But it's that same concept of, like, I can't remember his name, but the guy who has to, like, roll the stone up. and Sisyphus. The, right? And then there's the other one who is thirsty all the time and has to never, like, pours the cup and the well, cup always drains. And there's a million of these, like, yeah. little tales that are, like, like, it's just a really shitty punishment. It's a really shitty punishment. Now, from a feminist lens, I struggle with Victoria's punishment because she's a wraith in a female's body and has been punished with age. It's shitty. I don't like that. And that's the one thing. As if aging is a punishment. For women. And that's the thing. Yeah. Is that we see this all the time in 
pop culture. Mm-hmm. We see this everywhere. Even the Haunted Mansion at Disney. Yeah. There's a portrait where, you know, you see like these scary things where, you know, it's like, oh, they're innocent and they're actually a scary tiger. And then there's one portrait where it's a beautiful young woman and then it flashes and it's an old woman. It's like, how is that horror? How is that supposed to be scary? That's yeah. called. And it's only women. Only, never only see women. that with men, yeah. right? Because who cares if it's an old man? No, I'd be like your punishment is to become a silver fox. Like, yeah. what? <laughs> that's not nice. That sucks. <laughs> like George Clooney would be nothing without his gray hair. It's true. His punishment would be being forced to dye his hair this whole life. Yeah, it's true. It's true. <laughs> right? And it's like I'm not saying that that's a criticism on SJM because I think that's just society. Yeah, I and agree. I don't like that. But she got it right on the nose. Oh, yeah, she sure did. Because that is every... I, I don't want the crease between my eyebrows to be permanent. But they are. And it sucks. I mean, that would be like, for punishment, Botox will work everywhere but there. You know I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not the one thing I wanted. Remember how we talked about the power dynamics in the Triari and how Isaiah will not actively think about where Hunt falls? We see Isaiah look at Hunt when Sabine gets out of hand. Quote, never in order. He'd never dared to order Hunt around, not when the male possessed a hair trigger temper. And on the next page, quote, Hunt gave Sabine the cool stare that served as his only warning to opponents on a battlefield. None had ever survived what happened next. This whole chapter is setting Hunt up in the reader's eyes. He's supposed to come across as terrifying and volatile. It makes Bryce's attitude towards him <laughs> even more hilarious, but also dangerous. And like, oh, no, what's going to happen? She's like going to get herself killed because <laughs> Hunt can't control himself. But what happens is she stares down Hunt and walks away unscathed. And Bryce regularly makes Hunt mad and challenges him. And she's just fine. Which, again, probably goes into the mate thing. But that's for another time. This whole narrative is also tricking the reader into making assumptions about Hunt, the same way Hunt makes assumptions about Bryce. And that's just SJM being tricky, tricky. While Bryce is being interrogated, Hunt and Isaiah talk about whether Bryce would have motivation to kill Danica. Bryce, as Jack mentioned earlier, only has history of one crime that isn't even on her permanent record because she did her time for it. She did community service. She paid the fine. Danica, on the other hand, has seven files full of crimes. Quote, if you ask me, Bryce was the one who was led down a road of ruination and then maybe led Danica out of hers. I point this out because in the next chapter, Bryce goes to the Bone Quarter. We won't know until much later that Bryce goes there to give up her place in the Bone Quarter so that Danica can take it. The motivation to go to the Bone Quarter is in black and white right here. I used to think that it was really presumptuous of Bryce to be like, yeah, Danica's not going to make it to the afterlife, so I need to go secure her place for her. And I was like, wow, what a shitty friend. But we can see Danica has a history and Bryce is very well aware of it. Yeah. And just like the history that we know, the history that Bryce knows that we don't know, and the way that Danica treats Bryce too, Mm -hmm. right? The commanding, the you can't date her. Okay, now you can. And please make my night. Like all of these things are like relatively harmless, but in the grand scope of things, Danica was a really bad influence. And If your best friend, the one who knows you better than anyone, feels like they have to sacrifice their soul for yours, that speaks volumes. And you know what? She was probably right because of all the other shit she's lied about. Yeah. 
Honestly, they would have let Danica into the bone corridor just because of... I can't say it. It's a spoiler. Never mind. (laughs) (laughs) What I love about Earth and Blood is how good SJM is at planting information that we don't think about until much later or until we read the book the second time and see that, ah, that's why that information was there. It's informing something later without us being aware of it and without us remembering it half the time. It's really freaking masterful, and I don't think we could ever be capable of appreciating it during the first read. Like, you can't appreciate how masterful this book is until Mm -mm. the second read. And like you said, Jack, that's why this book is so large. Because she's doing it every page. Every page there is a clue. And I think people – I think that's why people struggle with the most is that they don't know what they're reading. Yeah. And even in the second reread, like uh, some of these things I didn't know until my third reread now that I'm doing the analysis. Like, I do think this is might be, again, we're only a few chapters in, one of her most intricate, well-written and well-thought-out book. Yeah. I, I It's masterful in its intricacy. Mm-hmm. I, I At this point in time, I still like A Court of Thorns and Roses better. Same, same. But... I'm prepared to be convinced otherwise. <laughs> yeah, I can definitely see where the strengths are with Crescent City more than others. Yeah. So while this should be in the breadcrumbs, I want to call out that as Victoria interrogates Bryce and Bryce continues to be unresponsive, Hunt tries to shut it down. Quote, fuck the orders. That woman is about to break and not in a good way. But how would Hunt know this? There are no reactions from Bryce going on at this moment. Is he perhaps already attuning to her? Or is it overprotectiveness? It's because they're maids. Even his reaction to hearing Bryce having been with another guy, it's not like jealousy or judgment. What he says is this isn't relevant. And he tries mm-hmm. to get Victoria to move on from it. And the entire interview is so screwed up. It is. It's just it's wrong. Like, hey, would you like to listen to your best friend die mm, mm-hmm. and hear her scream? Yeah. Can you imagine me? And like, no, no, you'd I don't want to imagine you. I would know. I, would, I, I like would. the fact that we've both agreed that I'm the one that's dead and you're the one being interrogated. <laughs> no, no. Was, in my scenario, I said I was dead. Oh, can you I, imagine me like oh, listening to me die? Oh, I thought you said, can you imagine me listening to you die? <laughs> Oh, no, yeah, no, you listen to me die. No, I thought you yeah. said the opposite way No, around. no, no. <laughs> I don't want to listen to it. It makes me too sad. Yeah, I know. But, like, it's just all around, like, bad bad, and bad detective skills, mm-hmm. I have to say. Like, they're, I feel like they're violating some kind of code with this. Doubt they have those codes, but it's not cool. And also, from a writing perspective, the fact that SJM doesn't show us Danica dying is a genius move. Oh, it's so good. Your imagination will always be better. Yeah. In so many ways. Like, that's why a lot of films will just kind of leave it off. There's Mm -hmm. like, you know, it alludes to stuff. And the fact that you know that whatever it was made Danica cry, beg, plead. Yeah. Everything. You know that, like, whatever it was was going to be really bad. So it's just, it's a smart move. So smart. And also Hunt says that Danica begged like a human at the end, which like it just shows how little valued humans are, you know, and I don't think Hunt hates humans. It's just the standard that the society has. Yeah, they're so weak, Mm -hmm. like she is reduced to status of human, even though she is one of the strongest Vanier. Yeah. 
Going back to Hunt, in addition to him being like sensing that Bryce is about to flip out, he barrels into the interrogation room right before Bryce physically flips out as if he sensed it. Then after her outburst, he reaches for her. Isaiah wonders, quote, how many people ever saw the hands of the Umbra Mortis reach for them with no hint of violence? Already, SJM is signaling that these two are endgame in my mind. And thank you for listening to my TED Talk. I love I love them. I didn't used to. But now I do. But now I are already. <laughs> Episode two. <laughs> I think because I, I am able to go into it knowing that they are endgame. Yeah. I'm allowed to like them. Okay. That makes my sense. feelings were held in place until I knew <laughs> for sure. You were waiting with bated breath for yes. comfor- confirmation. In her rage and grief, Bryce taps into her fate power, and boy, is she powerful. But she is held back by her humanity, as demonstrated by her vomiting. Quote, a feral growl filled the room as Bryce grabbed the chair she'd been sitting on, hurling it against the wall so hard its metal frame dented and crumpled. She vomited all over the floor. <laughs> I like how it's like, rage, vomit. <laughs> yeah. I'm super powerful. <laughs> My tummy hurts. Uh, and Hunt's the only one to crouch down next to her. Like, that's true love. Like, I'm going to hang out next to you in your vomit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's... yeah, yeah. Reese, Reese did that for Feyre. Right? I was thinking about that, too. A lot. I brought up the whole vomiting thing because we saw this also in A Court of Thorns and Roses, that SJM likes to use bodily functions Mm -hmm. as a sign of weakness, and that weakness is associated with humans. Mm -hmm. So I had to call it out. I think we're going to see it more than just this moment. Absolutely. I also want to call out this quote because it's informative of Hunt's future actions and how we should decipher him. Quote, Hunt's gray wings flared slightly, a Malik's usual stance when preparing for a physical fight. So we're going to see Hunt flare his wings periodically throughout the book. So I just want to point that out for us, because I definitely forgot that that's what it meant when I <laughs> read the book. That his... That wing. when he flares his wings, it's like a cobra spreading its hood, like, I'm about to fight you. Oh, right. That's like... This is a dangerous episode. A lot of of growling. In chapter seven, we find Bryce at the ivory gates of the Bone Quarter, which is definitely supposed to imply she's standing at the gates of the afterlife, given what she's about to do. In fact, we have an amalgamation of references to the afterlife here. The ivory gates look a lot like pearly gates to me, which is a popular Christian reference to heaven. And the black boat Bryce uses to cross the river is like the boat piloted by Cairn, the ferryman who takes the dead across the river Styx to Hades in Greek mythology. It's just everywhere. It's just everywhere. I love that it's not just one, though. And I'm sure there's more. Those were the only two that stuck out to me. Those Our brains are only capable of so much, and that's all we know. And really, honestly, the Cairn one... And, and the bow is only because I played the Hades video game. <laughs> so that's, oh, I know that. Wait a minute. Uh, this seems familiar. We get an idea of Bryce's headspace with this line. Quote, the Istra spread like a gray mirror behind her, silent in the pre-dawn light. And the mirror or the descriptive of the mirror that's behind her, it shows that she doesn't want to look at her own reflection. It's not an actual mirror, obviously, Mm -hmm. but it's a metaphorical mirror. And even that metaphorical mirror, she can't face. Mm -hmm. It's a great, great. Well, yeah, because she feels responsible regardless of whether she is or not. Yeah. She can't face. Also, what she's doing is wrong. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was thinking more about like 
she feels like she's the cause of the death. Yes. That's why she can't face herself. But what you're saying also is true. She can't yeah. face herself because she's she's cheating. She's cheating. And, like, I think Sabine even says at one point, like, it dishonors yeah. Danica to yeah. do this. Yeah. It's fair. So, like, she's making a really bad choice. Yeah. But you never know. But she's 23 and feels validated. I can't wait till her frontal lobe is developed yeah, in the yeah. next chapter. There's a moment where Bryce thinks that, quote, she'd been glad to leave her personal possessions, especially her phone, so full of anger and hatred. I wanted to stop and comment on this because the cell phone plays such an important role in this novel. And I appreciate how SJM incorporated the object, not just for the sake of it being there because it's convenient and easy and brings us to the present of our lives, it actually serves a purpose in the story in a way that is more than it being like a plot device. Mm -hmm. It's really masterful. I really appreciate it. So think about it this way. Bryce's cell phone in the beginning is the cause of a lot of pain. She gets pressure from texts from Connor and Danica and ultimately with the voicemail and using the evidence against her in the interrogation room. It's yeah. a lot of trauma for her in the process as well. Then when we get into the future, Hunt's lack of use of his phone shows his disconnect from the present mm -hmm. and unwillingness to be vulnerable and open himself up. But as he utilizes the cell phone more and they take pictures with the yeah. cell phone, it develops their relationship and it opens him up to be vulnerable. And it's just chef's kiss. It's like, so cute. It's great. It's so good. Yeah. So, I mean, we don't want to just say... Phone. Phone equals connection. Right. So it heals Bryce's connection as well. Yeah. Once she heals with her phone. I mean, because it was, you know, she was on her phone all the time with Danica, Connor, mm -hmm. Juniper, mm -hmm. all of it. Right. We then that phone becomes the source of the disconnect because um, Connor's little brother starts sending hate messages on mm -hmm. there, which is like so wrong. Yeah. Can't wait till you feel horrible. Yeah. And. Then it's just, but then like it becomes the source of connection with Hunt and Bryce. And so it is, I love the, I love the parallel that you made. I love that, you know, something like a cell phone can mean something. Yeah. In literature. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because I think a lot of writing nowadays, if it wants to be timeless, it takes out that technology element, but you can mm -hmm. actually use the technology to your in advantage. a meaningful way. Yeah. Yeah. And SGM does it. She does. Last but not least, from the perspective of power, Bryce is at her lowest right now. She's not consumed any food or water in days. She's barely even taking the sips of water that her mother forces on her. And because we've read the book and we know that Bryce is starborn, yet, quote, a light had gone out inside her. A light had been extinguished. Where at the beginning of this episode, Bryce was light and alive at the White Raven. She now has nothing. There is no light. There's no fuel or will to live. And it's just a really tragic place for us to start. Yeah. Because this now is the start. It like, is. Part one is just the prologue. <sighs> the first time I read this, I just was like, every, every time someone reads this, it's always like the... Oh, you there yet? You're there yet? And then you get the inevitable inevitable text of, what? Danica's dead? Danica's dead? Yeah. yeah. It's a bold choice. It is an extremely bold choice, and SJM does it extremely well. She, this is what happens when you let too many characters live. You gotta kill off Danica. That's, <laughs> that's right. Now let's get into breadcrumbs. 
non-multiverse. In chapter four, quote, Synth will make you feel like a god, whose name means like a god, Micah, who is invested in synth, Micah. And this is how freaking early it gets mentioned in the novel and doesn't come up again for ages. It's so smart. It's so smart. Also in chapter four, Connor to Bryce over text after she agrees to go on a date. Quote, I'll never keep you waiting. Bryce responds, don't make promises you can't keep. Oh, how Mm -hmm. painful. (laughs) Just stab me in the heart. Good luck surviving. Chapter four still. Danica had spent countless hours looking into the history of the dominant shifter packs in other cities. And if Danica had ever learned why the Fendir family claimed such a large share of the dominance pie, she never told Bryce. I don't know what to say other than the fact that the signs are all there. Just like Danica's constantly researching. Everything. Why are you surprised she was keeping cigarettes? Yeah, and then but then it's almost like you are so smart in researching and you know more, Danica, then why do you suck so hard? Yeah, yeah, also true. Chapter five, when Bryce gets home and thinks she's hallucinating instead of seeing real blood, quote, Bryce was never drinking or polluting her body with those drugs ever again. She'd tell Danica first thing tomorrow. Hurts my soul, but also true. Chapter five, quote, Bryce hefted the table leg, wishing she grabbed Danica's sword instead. No, the sword was in the gallery where Danica had ignored Jessica's warning and left it in the supply closet. Something to remember, not only for the end, but when in the next chapter, Sabine demands to get the sword back. It's so funny because like 80% of the book is like, where's the sword? I know, right? (laughs) We know where it is. Well, it's just funny like how much she doubles down. Yeah. Where it's like she even like tells the reader that it's there. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But to the point where I'm like, I believe her. Yeah. That we don't know where the sword is. Yeah. Still in chapter five, quote, the creature lunged, not for her, but the angel, right back to the chest and heart it was trying to get to, the more considerable prey. Or it's because the creature has no eyes and Bryce is wearing an Arkeesian amulet, so it can't detect or sense her, just like it can't detect the horn. Still in chapter five, when Bryce tells the dispatcher to track the phone number of the angel she's helping and suddenly says, holy gods, they're coming, the responder breathed. She tried to ignore the inquiries on the mail, but Bryce dropped the angel's phone. I knew in that instant it was someone really important, but, and very quickly, Amy assumed it was Micah. So apparently that never surprised you. Nope, not at all. I I mean, I wasn't too surprised. It was one of those, like... It's just like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, but what surprised me was, like, he really was evil. Mm. I figured it was him, but I was like, but he touched her knee. (laughs) <laughs> yeah Kindly? no it's true so like i was on board that it was him but i i struggled with him being bad the knee touch threw me off yeah, yeah. chapter six quote a witness he'd made damn sure the record stated not a suspect because she's the only reason micah didn't die in that alley and that's the only reason why she's allowed to be called a witness not a suspect Another one, quote, Hunt seemed to exist within a permanent ripple of stillness. It was the baited silence before a thunderclap. Because Hunt's power manifests as lightning, get it? And he makes those ass cheeks clip. (laughs) (laughs) Still in chapter six, quote, Isaiah knew Hunt was well-versed in the details. They both were. And they knew that even here in the secure observation room, they'd be fools to risk saying anything delicate aloud. Because they can't jeopardize the big boss man's perceived power. Therefore, they can't talk about Micah getting his ass kicked. Mm-hmm. Another quote. Hunt has realized at first Bryce's thigh had been shredded open. 
Hunt had cursed up a storm as he knelt before her, and she bucked, nearly kicking him in the balls. But then he pulled off his helmet, looked her right in the eye, and told her to calm the fuck down. She'd fallen completely silent, just stared at Hunt. Because they're mates. And we've talked about it. They're they're matey mates. It's the same whole dominance thing between Reese and Farah and Mist and Fury. Yeah. Like, because he tells her, basically, to calm the fuck down. And she does. Uh, still in chapter six, quote, whether ordinary angel or archangel, the power was always some variation of the same, but none in living memory possessed Hunt's ability to harness lightning to as well. So this is a theory from me. Either lightning is an important power to be able to defeat the Asteria and they've destroyed knowledge of that, or Hunt is not actually pure angel and that's why he has lightning because it's not an angel's power and we have no clue who his father is. So we'll find out TBD. eventually. Still in chapter six, quote, even if Isaiah chopped off his arm, the limb that regrew would bear the mark. It's important to note since regrowth is going to be uh, taking a big, we'll be playing a big part later. Yeah. Yeah. Sabine calls Bryce a wannabe wolf. And it's just ironic since the prime will call Bryce a wolf later at the end of the novel. Who's the wannabe now, Sabine? Sabine says, quote, Danica couldn't stay out of trouble. She could never keep her mouth shut and know when to be quiet around her enemies. Danica should have known better. Sabine is mad at Danica for Luna's horn incident and cover up. I wonder who Sabine thinks killed her. It's a great question. Mm-hmm. No clue. Probably Bryce. <laughs> I think she knows it's not right. But yeah. like, yeah, she probably is like somehow Bryce is related. But yeah. Quote, Hunt smiled at Sabine's disappearing figure, a target marked, not today, not even tomorrow, but at one point in the future, like in two years when Bryce and Hunt decide Sabine's the cause of all the deaths. Chapter six, quote, cameras covered all of Lunathian with unparalleled visual and audio coverage, which they will use to figure out that Danica stole Luna's horn. Rune says to Hunt, quote, stay the fuck away from Bryce. And I had to include it because it's just ironic. <laughs> Not only is Hunt about to be forced to stay with Bryce, Bryce wants nothing to do with Rune. And it's just beautiful. Chef's kiss. Chef's kiss. Rune Dan, crowd prince, the Balbaran. <laughs> quote. If Bryce is smart, she'll lie low and not attract the attention of any other powerful immortals for the rest of her life. Because she clearly has such a say in that. Right. And like, she can't help and it. That's, right? And that's like the rest of the book. Yeah. Now we're going to go into multiverse. In chapter five. Since the day the Vanir had crawled through the Northern Rift and overtaken Midgard, occupied by creatures from so many different worlds. Just all around multiverse. Also, crawled is an interesting choice. Yeah, when I saw that and I was like, crawled out, I was like, is it small? <laughs> Did you have to? Why'd you crawl? Was there a little hole? You have to like <laughs> really crawl through? Is it under something like a mountain? In chapter five, quote, Bryce contemplated the keypad as if it'd open a pair of eyes and tell her some buildings did that. Makes me think of the talking doorknob, Mort, in Throne of Glass, specifically Crown of Midnight. I just had to put that in there. That's great. In Chapter 6, the Star Sword has a black hilt that, quote, devours the glaring first lights. Isaiah had once heard someone say the sword was made from iridium, mined from a meteorite forged in another world before the Fae had come through the Northern Rift. Who has shadows that devour light? 
Asriel, who also has Truth Teller, which, oh, is the twin to the Star Sword. It just, I feel like I need to, like, reread that line. Like, okay, made from Iridium, which, okay, that's a thing, mined from... A meteorite. A meteorite. So it came from the sky. Uh-huh. Forged in another world. Yeah. There's <laughs> just a lot going on. It's just like, this is so much. In chapter six, quote, rumors claim Rune's magic was more like those of his kin who ruled the sacred Fey Isles of Avalon across the sea. Power to summon shadows or mist that could not only veil the physical world, but the mind as well. Perhaps even telepathy. Yes, Rune does indeed have the power of telepathy, which comes in handy later. And all of this sounds increasingly like Reese, who we know in Sky and Breath is nearly identical. And I've been like, now that I know that and rereading this, I'm like keeping an extra eye on every detail. And also Avalon means apple tree. And I'm thinking like Adam and Eve or like ancestries, as if they're all the purest line that comes from Prithian. Yeah. Nice. Why nice. else would it be like the Sacred Fey Isle and where the Starborn yeah. sword is and all that junk? No, I love it. Last but not least, still in Chapter 6, quote, Distant family, I heard the Fey like to keep their bloodline undiluted. For some reason in my book, I wrote both Akatar and Throne of Glass. And I guess I was thinking about the Hewn City and the Night Court that, like, they interbred. But also Aelin and Adian, who could have married each other if they wanted to, even though they were cousins. Mm-hmm. And they were mm-hmm. also kind of related to the Fae. Mm-hmm. So, Good stuff. just uh, feel like... Also, I wondered if SGM was introducing this thought of interbreeding to create a fake love triangle between Bryce and Rune. Oh, I think it's for Cormac. Oh, yeah, that's fair. Because when Cormac did come into the scene, I was like, the triangle is here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then she dismissed it pretty quickly. Yeah, true. Now for this week's Bryceism. This week, don't be afraid to walk out in uncomfortable situations. In fact... Don't even answer the questions if you don't want to. Damn right. Let us know how your week's Bryceism goes. Someone's like, I walked out of class. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't answer my boss when he asked me for something. (laughs) Please use it within the correct context. So, uh, Amy, I've got a question. Yeah. What are the early false perceptions of Bryce? So it's pretty obvious to us that Bryce is being viewed with a lot of disdain. Because her friends are dead. She, yeah, that's not great. It's not great. I mean, and it's just anybody who can, like, vouch for her is gone. Mm-hmm. Other than Fury and Juniper, who we know ultimately kind of, like, peace out themselves in their own ways. Bryce is left alone. And so she is going to be, as we see, saw in Chapter 6, viewed as a party princess, viewed as not being smart mm-hmm. not making the right kind of choices or the right kind of friends slut shaming slut shaming like there's a lot that's going to be stacked up against her and we're going to continue to see it we're seeing it now here because of danica's death and we're going to continue to see it because bryce perpetuates that belief yeah i would say that in the first chapter bryce has not i'm not gonna say a good understanding of herself but has Ununderstanding of herself, right? There's something where she kind of gets that she, you know, has been at this job, she parties a little bit. Like, 
I'm not going to say that she's, you know, found herself, but at the end, I can see how everyone's perceptions of her clouds her Mm -hmm. to the point where she then embraces it. And that is her identity that she then lives up to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's going to become a persona that she uses to her advantage. Yeah. Or it's going to be a persona that she hides behind. Mm -hmm. And we'll start to see it her true self more and more. Yeah. And I think she'll be figuring out her true self more and more. She was on the right path of like, you know, the way that the youths discover themselves type thing. Yeah. But now she's been set back and we're going to see it again. And I'm excited for the next part of the book because she's older. Yeah. And this is the oldest heroine that we've had from SJM. Yeah. I do. I will. I do want to say and acknowledge if you before Danica's death told Bryce you're a party princess she'd be like fuck yeah I am Mm -hmm. right so maybe the perception is not false but it is not completely it's not the full picture of who she is yeah it's not the full picture and it's a picture that she's not mad about like because she kind of has a say in that picture like she knows that she's out there partying right and now that perception is what's getting her not in trouble but people aren't taking her seriously yeah And I'm sure that can be really frustrating where it's like, no one's taking me seriously. So how can they actually go and figure out what happened? Mm -hmm. You know, if they're busy, not under like listening to what I have to say. Right. And it's and it's its own cage in a way Mm -hmm. that, oh, if this is how people perceive me, then I must not be capable of much more than this. Almost like a steel cage. Almost like a steel cage, because she does kind of just sit and wallow in it for a while yeah and that's why we have the two-year time jump yeah she doesn't know what to do yeah she's definitely stuck so i'm excited for next part can i tell you a stupid thought that popped in my head sure so we know that like fury and juniper are together Mm -hmm. do you think at any point in order to win juniper over fury brought out a guitar and started singing drops of jupiter no just change it to drops of Juniper. Juniper. <laughs> <Yeah>. No. no. <laughs> she didn't like. But maybe, maybe I might need to sing that now. Right? Like every time we say Juniper, I'm like, Jupiter. About an atmosphere. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Book Talk for Book Talk. We encourage you to rate and subscribe to our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. Next week, we will be exploring chapters 8 through 13 of A House of Earth and Blood. We would love to hear your thoughts based on today's conversation. You can submit your comments to our form at booktalkforbooktalk.com for a chance to have your feedback discussed during a future mini episode. If you are enjoying the podcast, please visit our website, booktalkforbooktalk.com to view our latest merch and learn about supporting the show through Patreon, Ko-Fi, or Venmo. You can also follow us on TikTok or Instagram at the handle booktalkforbooktalk. Bye! Bye.